All right. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 16, please? Luke chapter 16, we're going to look at verses 19 through 31. And the message is entitled, Be a Wise Investor. There are many individuals in the world who are admired and looked up to for their wisdom and ability to create money, wealth. The three most riches are the following. Warren Buffett, number one, $62 billion. Carlos Slim Elu from Mexico, a son of a Lebanese immigrant, is worth $60 billion. And then Bill Gates III of Microsoft, worth $58 billion. People are always flocking to be around them. They admire them. They just think they're the highest of them. Now, if these men are not born again, all their money means absolutely nothing. Now, do you know what these three richest men in the world have in common with the three poorest people in the world? First, they're all going to die. Second, they're going to leave everything behind. The equalizer. <laughs> what we want to do is look at being a wise investor in the kingdom of God. Now, the basic principle of investing is that you want to receive the greatest return with the lowest risk. And to do that, secondly, you want to diversify your investments so that in the event that something happens, you don't lose all your eggs or in one basket. Um, we have been studying all of the things that um, have been taking place in one Sabbath day as Jesus is headed for Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. It began in chapter 14, verse 1, and it ends in chapter 17, verse 10. All of that is one day, if you go through the Gospel of Luke and don't mark it. Let me just kind of show you so we build up so you see where this text tonight, this morning is, is headed for. Um, in chapter 14, verse 1 through 14, Jesus was invited, remember, by uh, the Pharisee on the Sabbath day, they had plotted a man with dropsy to see if he was going to heal him. He healed him. And then he turned around and he rebuked the Pharisee for, uh, well, first the guests for looking for the, the best seats. And then the Pharisee for inviting only those who could repay him in kind. And told him that he should have uh, invited the, um, the less fortunate, the poor, the maim, the lame, and the blind. And then in chapter 14, 15 through 24, Jesus then gave a parable of that great supper. And he invited some, and they all gave excuses. I have oxen to try, I have land to, t to go see, I have a wife, uh, you know, I just married. And they were lame excuses. Uh, and so he told his servant uh, to go get those in the streets, the highways, and uh, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind again. And those invited had rejected would not taste of his supper. And then in 14, 25 through 35, Jesus then spoke of, to the multitudes the cost of being a disciple. And that sometimes it even costs us our families because often when people accept the Lord in other countries, other cultures, they are uh, persecuted or just cut off completely as part of the family. Um, and so he says, Access your cost by the illustration of a tower. Count, consider the cost what it's going to take to build it and finish it. And if not, like people at war, they attack you. Consider if you can defeat them or if you should make a peace treaty. Um, and then in 15, 1 through 32, uh, all tax collectors took the uh, announcement of Jesus to hear as near let him hear. They came close to hear him, but the Pharisees began to murmur against Jesus because he was receiving them and eating with them and forgiving them. Which, of course, um, he gives um, 
the parable in three parts of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost sons. And he rebukes the Pharisees. Heaven rejoices over one sinner's repentance. And then in 16, 1 through 13, Jesus has just spoken to his disciples. You see the multitude of disciples, the Pharisees in the backdrop. Uh, about this unjust steward who was busted for stealing from his master. And he recalls him, gives him time to hand over the books. But he arranges uh, uh, preparations by cutting down the bill of others. And, and when the master saw what he did, he commended the shrewdness of this unjust steward. Not his dishonesty, his shrewdness. Even though he ripped them off, he realized, you're pretty shrewd. It wasn't Jesus who commended the shrewd, the, um, his shrewdness of, of, of that. But then Jesus makes the application to us. And then in 14 through 18 here, chapter 16, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, hearing this stuff, knew that Jesus was talking about them. And they turned their nose up to him. And he rebuked them because much of their gain was dishonest. And they weren't doers and obedient of the law. They would always circumvent the law. They were just like him. In all these things up to this point, two things are present in all these teachings of Jesus. First, the need of repentance to enter the kingdom of God, accompanied with those who were rejecting to enter the kingdom of God, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then secondly, the importance and prominence of the place of money and wealth to those who do not know God and need also the Christian to realize that he's to be a faithful investor in the kingdom of God while here on earth. In fact, I didn't give you the punchline. Listen to the punchline of every one of these things that I gave you. In 1414, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Spiritual investment. 1424, for I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Spiritual investment. Bad one. 1435, he was a near, let him hear. The, dis the disciples were listening, the multitudes were listening, they were coming, the Pharisees, the scribes were turning away. 15, 7, 10, and 32, there's joy in heaven over one sinner, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the two lost sons. One was saved, the other one remained lost. In 69, and I say to you, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into the everlasting home. Punchline. The everlasting home. We're here for a little while. Pilgrims, sojourners. And then in 1615, you are those who justify yourselves, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. This last one with the unjust steward is a direct, immediate connection to being a wise investor for the kingdom of God. The text of the rich man in the Lazarus here, the beggar, is the climax to all the preceding material to illustrate who really is a wise investor in the true riches in 1611. And it unfolds for us here 
in the threefold movement. Let me read for us verse 11. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 19 on down to 31. He said, There was a certain man who was uh, clothed with purple and fine linen and fasted uh, or fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and he was carried by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am torments in these flames. But Abraham says, Son, remember that you had in your lifetime, you received uh, your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. The one rise from the dead. The exhortation of being a good investor unfolds for us in the story of this rich man Lazarus in three movements. First, you have the two men in life, 19 through 21, the two men in life. Then you have the two men after death in 22 to 26. And then you have the third movement, the two regrets in eternity, 27 through 31. It begins with the two men in life, 19 to 21. Notice in 19, the rich man is given to us. He is identified by a social position. There was a certain rich man, one of many of that day. And the word rich there is wealthy, have an abundance of everything. We've looked at it before of the 10 times that appears in Luke, nine of them are given by the mouth of Jesus. He has much to say about the poor. And this man had all that, I mean about the rich, as well as the poor, um, but this man had all he needed. This man uh, had the ability to buy anything he wanted. He never said, well, how much? Like, he, just, he just bought it. He had all kinds of money. He obviously was a good investor of his generation, even as the parable of the unjust steward, his shrewdness. Now, nothing is said about whether he gained it honestly or dishonestly, uh, but much of the world were almost corrupted, and even the majority today, in our day, those who make money, uh, there's few that are very uh, honest and have integrity. Remember one thing, what is legal is not always ethical. Okay? So when people say, well, I, we did it all according to the law, what does that mean? The law is like a rubber band, it depends which way you pull it. We as Christians live by what's right and wrong, what's ethical, not just what's legal. Abortion is legal, but it's not moral or ethical, right? Now, he is described by his luxurious dress. 
who was clothed in purple and fine linen. The rich man here of this purple material was dye of, a, of purple fish or of a species of shellfish. So it cost a lot. Had to be extracted, had to be manufactured, all that. And this is the color of elitism and also of royalty. It was the color of Rome. It's the color of, of the Catholic Church. Uh, much wealth. Okay? So when people saw him, you saw someone with that color. Whoa. The rich man wore fine linen also. Made of, from uh, Mbisus, they say, a very costly and delicate soft material. Uh, there was the white and there was the off-white, almost like a yellow. And so this uh, declared you were high fashion. You know, you're up to date. You were, you were in with all the, uh, the latest fashion and hairdressers and dress and the whole thing. So uh, this is where the man lived. Now, there's nothing wrong with money in and of itself, as we will see as we move through this. This is not a bash on people with money. That's not what it's about. The focus is on a spiritual investment. That's the priority. Now, notice he is depicted by his great feast. He fares sumptuously every day. So the rich man delighted himself in a flamboyant way. I mean, he um, um, splendidly, magnificently is what the word says. Um, he was over the top on everything, you know, and his parties were thrown. I mean, everything was decorated and it was just lavish. It was just a bunch of people. It was just the best thing. And uh, you know how it is. And by the way, he, um, he feasted, it says, every day, daily. So when you live like this, you've got a lot of cash. The rich man, without doubt, had gourmet food. The most exotic of the day. Here you come to the table, and it's abundance and variety and all this. What's this? I've never seen this. And you come up by, the, oh, that's good. And he walks by and says, $1,000 an ounce, baby. Impressive. The rich man probably had many servants presented his guests and the food and these great feasts and tending to him as well as the others. And, and they were probably also dressed nice and they had the latest of things of uh, dishware and uh, people are impressed as they're walking around. And that's just the way um, opulence is. Um, some people buy a Mercedes or move to a certain neighborhood just so people can say, Man. Now, there's nothing wrong with you having a Mercedes, nothing wrong with you being in a nice neighborhood. But why is it that I do it and how do I do it? What? All of that as a Christian, I have to take into consideration. Um, notice the beggar Lazarus then comes into view here, verse 20 and 21. He's identified also by his social position. But there was a certain beggar. The word but is a contrasting conjunction. There's a chasm between these two. This places him in the sharp contrast to the rich man um, in the place of poverty. Uh, the man was one of many beggars, a certain beggar. And the word beggar simply indicates a person destitute of wealth, uh, position, influence, or power. Um, he, has, he has absolutely nothing. Uh, nine of the ten times... Uh, uh, come from the mouth of Jesus uh, when this word is used. Notice he was one who begged for alms to survive, uh, to live from day to day, uh, describing the horrific poverty. Um, I, I've never known anything like that. Um, I've known people who, who have uh, been poor, but not this poor. Um, 
He also is identified by his personal name, which is different now. Lazarus. The name Lazarus means whom God helps. Come again. We're going to find out he's a believer. And, and, and his name means whom God helps. And, and he's in poverty. See, because there's some people in the Christian community who tell you that if you really have faith, you will be wealthy, healthy. Name it and claim it. And that's evidence of your spirituality. Nothing can be further from the truth. You can be the poorest and the most spiritual and be the wealthiest and headed for hell on a fast track. What a seeming contradiction to a social position from human perspective. His name comes from the Hebrew name Eliezer. Now remember, he's going to be in the bosom of Abraham. How interesting, Abraham had a servant named Eliezer. Notice the fact that his personal name is stated is different. So many believe that this is a story, a true story, not a parable. I believe that also. First, because it's not called a parable. Second, because a personal name is used and in no other parable are personal names ever used. Jesus is going to give us information here that is not fictitious. It is absolute true revelation about something that they had no idea about prior to this teaching as Jews. Notice he, Lazarus, is described by his inability to care for himself, full of sores who was laid at his gate, the rich man. His physical condition is indicated by the phrase full of sores. It means a... His entire body was just covered with ulcerated openings and blisters and, 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 and huge uh, um, sores that oozed with pus and, and scabbed over. And I'm sure dirty and I'm sure it smelled. Um, we never used to see anything like this in America, but now we're starting to see this where, since the home population is rising in America. And uh, if you ever go to Israel with us, you can go outside the old city, out of the Damascus gates, you'll find many like this with open sores and horrific uh, skin conditions and other things that are there begging. Notice his um, vulnerable state is declared who was laid at his gate, the rich man's gate. Someone would just carry him someplace and just drop him off at that location. Someone placed him here at the rich man's gate. His clothes torn, tattered, smelling, oozing. Just drop him off there. He is depicted in a very dehumanized manner. Look at verse 21. He's hoping to be given the scraps off the table, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. It's like you waiting outside a restaurant, um, waiting for the scraps for the people that are eating in there. The word desiring means longing for whatever would fall to the ground. 
that that was his highest goal for the day. Often they would take the bread to wipe their fingers, take the heel or whatever. They didn't have knives and forks. They ate with their hand. They grabbed some bread and wiped it. And then they would throw it to the ground and the house puppies would eat it. He's hoping to get that. Plus notice he's having to deal with the roaming dogs. Moreover, the dogs came and they licked his sores. The word moreover, perhaps would be better translated, nevertheless, notwithstanding. I mean, he's having a hard time. He's hoping for food and these pesty dogs. You know, have you ever been somewhere where there's a lot of flies and, you know, just over and over again. But at the same time, um, though the dogs were a nuisance, at the same time, as they licked the source, he might have got some relief from them also. It's a sweet and sour. We have no idea what led to his condition, but it is a horrific condition. You know, of the ten richest countries, the U.S. is seventh, and extreme poverty exists in all ten. Jesus said, The poor you have with you always, poverty will never end. Should we do something? Yes, all that we can within the wisdom of man. There should always be benevolence, always have pity. But someone who tries to eradicate poverty through the expense of everybody's livelihood and their possessions is not biblical. In fact, you create more poverty because now you break the rich so you make them poor. It's simple. The material things do not make us a Christian, but they can cause us to be carnal and unspiritual. Do I possess things or do things possess me? That's the question I have to ask myself as I've walked through life these 40, 40, 41 years in Christ. Um, am I covetous rather than content? If so, then I will never be satisfied. Because hell and destruction are never full, neither the eyes of man are satisfied. Am I trusting in my money instead of God? However small or large the amount of money I have, the amount really is not the issue. If I am trusting in that, then I'm truly poor, spiritually speaking. Listen to Paul the Apostle, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, not, not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In everywhere and all things I have learned, both to be full and to be hungry, both to be abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And so as believers, we thank God for what God gives us, what we have, we're good stewards, but we don't rely or serve him simply because of what we have. Do I take others into consideration and give and help as the Lord leads me, not as people tell me? There's the key. Do I do it to be seen? Do I do it so people feel indebted to me and in such a way that they feel indebted? Do I do it to impress people, to influence them, that I'm a kind person? 
Or do I do it out of God's agape love and love for my fellow man? Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 6, 38. He says, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You reap to what you sow. You cast your bread on the waters, Ecclesiastes says, and it may come back to you. It's a spiritual principle we don't understand. But certainly it shouldn't be a motivation for giving. That's carnal. The two men in life lived on opposite economic levels on earth. What a chasm between them here. But the second movement, there's a dramatic change. The two men after death, 22 to 26. Notice in 22, the time for the beggar Lazarus to die came. And um, Lazarus took his last breath. So it wasn't the beggar died. Uh, we're not told um, if, if he died out of the complications of his ulcerated body. Uh, we're left to our own imagination if he died alone. Most likely didn't have family. Uh, so most likely they took his body and they cast it out to the valley of Hinnom. Where the trash dump of the city and the fire never died and the worm, the, the fire never quenched and the worm never died. Jesus used that to depict the ultimate sentence for all unbelievers in the lake of fire. So his body was cremated, literally. So some people have an objection to cremation. Well, he's, he's there with God. <laughs> okay? So apparently if you're a Christian and you get cremated, he's not going to affect you. Okay? <laughs> Interesting. Now, notice Lazarus was instantly ushered to Hades. And it was, he was carried by the angels to the, Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is identified as Hades in verse 23 for us. And as we move through, it'll start developing and we'll touch the other aspects of the Hades and Sheol. Now, notice angels are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation. These angels just grabbed them and just ushered them right before Abraham. And the bosom indicates that you're reclining to eat as the disciples with Jesus. And you're leaning back on the bosom. Peaceful. Comfortable. Abraham is the father of faith. And Lazarus identified as a man of faith. You would have never identified him as a man of faith on earth. From just looking at him. What's your name? God helps us. <laughs> What's your name? Remember Abraham, what's your name? Father of many. Oh, how many children have? None. Wow. Abraham is pictures the one comforting Lazarus after death. Verse 25. Now notice the end of 22 and 23. The time came for the rich man now to die also. The rich man also took his last breath. He died and was buried. He probably had the best physicians available to him. You can imagine all the money he has. They just tried everything. His expense was no problem. We're not told of what he died. And probably he died with his family and friends and all those who wanted to be included in his will. See, the problem with having money is you really don't know who your real friends are. When you're poor, you know who your friends are. You don't have to worry about that. Now, notice the rich man was then buried. That means he had a funeral in contrast to Lazarus. 
I'm sure without doubt it was elaborate, luxurious, according to his manner of lifestyle. The rich man was instantly present in Hades, though. All this fanfare here didn't matter. More lies are told in funerals than anywhere else. Everybody wants to live like the devil and die like a saint. Listen to me tell you something. You die just like you live. Remember that. The rich man is instantly present in Hades, being in torments in Hades. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. Shocking. He found himself in torments, acute pain, discomfort. The rich man went from a life of luxury and comfort to find himself in an awful suffering situation. The rich man never would have imagined himself in such a circumstance. He had servants. He could order. He could buy. He could do whatever he could. But notice he was not ushered by angels, but just found there in Hades. So at death, there's a distinction between believers and non-believers. Hades is equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew shield. The place of the departed spirit. So prior to this text, all Jewish Hebrews knew that all men died and they went to shield, the grave, the place of departed spirit. But they didn't know what we're going to be told here. There was divided in two. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham, notice, and Lazarus at a distance and Lazarus in his bosom. Notice he could see. Notice he had consciousness. Notice he saw Lazarus who was in constant pain and suffering on earth now being comforted. The roles have switched. The time came then for the rich man to be gripped with the eternal reality from Abraham 24 and 26. In 24, notice the rich man called on Abraham to relieve his pain. He knew who Abraham was, by the way, but he had not believed in the promise of Abraham. That means he probably was a Jew, unless he was a proselyte. Then he cried out, Father Abraham! In that day was a Lord, Lord! You remember me? I never knew you. Wow. Notice he did for the first time what he never did in his entire life on earth. He begged and he pleaded for help. Have mercy on me, pity. He still thought he could give orders and Lazarus was his inferior, he thought. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in these flames. The agony is literal. Please do not spiritualize it or make it symbolic. You'll make Jesus out to be a liar. This is information that we never have in the Old Testament of what goes on after people die. Absolute divine revelation. At this point, we're informed that Sheol and Hades was a twofold compartment 
with the dead. Jesus is speaking. Those who died in faith went to the bosom of Abraham, and those who died apart from faith went to the place of torment. Some interpret the division to be a place of comfort above and the place of torment beneath because it says he lifted up his eyes. Side by side, up and down, bunk beds, whatever you want. doesn't matter to me. You just don't want to be in the place of torment. Notice in 25, Abraham asked the rich man to reflect on his life on earth in contrast to Lazarus. He asked them to consider how different their lives were. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. The rich man delighted in the good things, agathos, indicating good in nature or usefulness, salutary, pleasant. He was not in torment here because he was a rich man. He was in torment because he did not consider the spiritual things and the important things about God. Though he had all good things around him to benefit him on earth. Lazarus delighted himself in the things of God, even though he received evil things, indicating in nature troublesome, injurious, and suffering. According to the positive confession people in much of Channel 40, the rich man was more spiritual than Lazarus from the earthly perspective because he had money. He was healthy. So who are you going to believe? Pharisees or the words of Jesus? <laughs> Notice he informed the rich man that he and Lazarus were reaping to their belief and trust in God while on earth. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. The rich man considered himself a wise investor in his earthly future. The rich man never considered the future of eternity. Lazarus considered God and eternity. There's a big difference. Look at 26, Abraham revealed to the rich man that there was a separation between those who died in faith and those who died without faith. See, we don't have any of this information prior to this in the Old Testament. He informed the rich man that the two compartments were uncrossable. And besides all this, between you, us and you, there is a great Gulf fix. The word gulf fix means a, 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 a great opening or literally we get the word chasm from it. Like the Grand Canyon or uh, if you try to go up to the balcony and you're going to have a contest, who can reach the stage? It's too big of a chasm. You might get to the seventh or eighth uh, chair and break your back, but no one's going to reach the stage. It's a great chasm. And notice he informed the rich man that their state was eternal. And were prohibited by going from one location to the other. So that those who want to pass, those who want to pass from here to you cannot. Nor can those from there pass to us. It's an eternal state. 
during his life on earth, the only thing that separated him, the rich man, from Lazarus was the gate on his house. <laughs> That's it. And he never crossed over it to relieve his pain and suffering. It wasn't a priority. It wasn't an issue. You remember the rich young businessman in Luke 12, 20 through 21, who had an abundance of uh, crops. And he said, I know what I will do. I will tear my old bars down, build new ones. I will say um, to my soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There's the reason. Nothing wrong with the money. But you're rich in that, but you're poor towards God. You're not rich. God's not part of it. And you may go to church. You may give money. You may give to charitable causes and all that. But if you're not born again, if God's not directing and guiding, if you're not being that spiritual investor seeking the Lord for wisdom, then you're in the, you're in the driver's seat. You're doing things that many pagans do. There was a Texan who was wealthy, and he, he wanted to have a real lavish um, funeral. So he said, I want to be buried in my Cadillac. So, you know, you have money, and you do whatever you want. So I had to get a crane everything else, big old hole, and there they go, man. They're lowering that guy down. They, they you know, got them all embalmed and everything. They're sitting behind there, strapped them in and all that. And, and somebody there in the funeral said, man, that is living. Really? Well, when he gets to hell, he'll find out there's no gas stations. Bummer. Our perspective here on earth is very twisted unless we know the word of God. When Jesus died, he descended down to Hades, or Sheol, as you know. And he preached to those who died in faith. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 tells us. Ephesians 4, 10 also says he descended. Uh, Peter quoted Psalm 16, 10 in Acts 227 the day of Pentecost about Jesus says for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption Jesus descended for three days and he came up with a glorified body he does body did not see corruption when Jesus was hanging on the cross if you remember the two thieves they both cursed him and one changed his mind repented and he said Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said in Luke 23, 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was speaking about that part of Hades and Sheol, called the bosom of Abraham, the place of comfort. He called it paradise, which he would descend down to preach to those who had died in faith. And then... As he did, he would scoop them up, as Colossians 2.15 tells us. He made a public display of all those demons. They couldn't stop him. And he emptied Sheol, the bosom of Abraham. Paradise, the place of comfort. And he ascended up on high, as Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 says, that he not only ascended, he descended, but he ascended up high above all things. And so... Jesus transferred paradise, the bosom of Abraham, 
to the third heaven. Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 2, 4, tells us he was caught up to the third heaven, paradise, and he heard things not lawful to utter. So now, the instant a person dies who's a believer, they are instantly present before the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. The minute a non-believer dies, they are instantly present in Hades, only one compartment now, in torment, waiting for the white throne judgment. At the rapture, we will receive our glorified bodies, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. So I die, I'm instantly present. My body goes to the ground. Cremation will do in 30 seconds what the dirt will do in 30 years. And when Christ returns for his church, we will receive our glorified bodies. As those loved ones come down, descend, we go up with the bodies that are glorified. And then we go back to the heaven with the Lord for seven years while the tribulation is going on here. So Hades today is where the unsaved people go and are eternally separated from God. Until that white throne judgment when the books will be opened and God will judge them. There is no second opportunity to repent or to be saved once you die. Anybody who gives you that hope is a liar and a deceiver. It is appointed unto men to die at once, and after this is a judgment, Hebrews 9.27 says. Let me read you Revelation 20.11-13. through 13. He says, Then I saw the great white throne, and him who sat on it, from those whose face the earth... And heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book were opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead and that were in it, and, the, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. So Hades will give up all those who are kind of in a holding tank, but they're still in eternal separation from God before they brought before the white throne judgment to be judged for their sins and then sentenced on their level of punishment in the lake of fire, Gehenna. Revelation twenty fifteen says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's Gehenna. That was created for Satan and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one. The two men after death received opposite spiritual investment returns in Hades. Now, who do you think was a better investor? <laughs> Notice, thirdly, the third movement is the two regrets in eternity, 27 through 31. In 27 and 28, the rich man regretted the thought of his five brothers ending up in the same place of torment. Notice his petition was respectful to Abraham. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, meaning Lazarus. The word beg simply means to beseech and treat. Once again, this is too late to humble yourself. You humble yourself before you die, before God. Here it doesn't matter. It's done. His concern was that his brothers living on earth would end up there. He says, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Notice 
the stress, the agony. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute, stop right there. I can't believe in a God would do that. Well, I could care less what you believe. And God's not biting his nails about what you believe about him. God is warning you of what expects every unbeliever and what they should expect. This is not dangling you over hell to scare you. No, no, no. You're saved by conviction, seeing yourself lost and asking for God's mercy. You're not saved because you're scared. No one can scare you out of hell or the hell out of you. You're convicted. You repent. You see the love of God for you. The word testify simply means a personal speech to speak to these brothers after he's died to go back. This is unbiblical. It doesn't happen. He'll show us that. It's to warn them lest they end up in the same place. So he's realizing a, a terrible conclusion. Most likely my brothers may end up here. I want to warn them. There can't be anything more anxious, more horrifying than to know what's going to happen to someone. And there's nothing, nothing you can do about it. Wow. Look at 29 and 31. The rich man regretfully heard his petition denied by Abraham. The response of Abraham was that they had all they needed. Remember that. Listen to the words. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. This is not, oh, no, suck it up. Tough. No, it's not what he's saying. He's saying, God has given Moses and the prophet and they speak very clearly and they show the way. God had given the sufficient revelation for sinners to know their need of repentance to be saved. Their need was to hear. The word is a cool. We get acute hearing from it. To attend, consider, and to respond to the writings of Moses on how to live and the prophets to repent. The rich man did not believe scripture was sufficient. Listen to his words. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He must think himself a prophet. It's not biblical. He's still rebellious against God in Hades. He was saying God is not fair, not just. That's not sufficient. He believes he knew better. Saying if someone who has died goes back to them, they will repent. You see, he knew his brothers were not going to pay attention to Moses and the prophets. He knew they were going to be right there with him. The words of Abraham assured him his brothers would not believe Lazarus. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. The one rise from the dead. The word persuaded means to induce one by words to believe or to win over. The evidence had been verified when Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was raised from the dead as Jesus came to Bethany. And 
He says, Lazarus, come forth. And as has been said by many, that he said, Lazarus, lest the whole graveyard come forth. And John 12, 10 tells us that the chief priests tried to kill Lazarus, put him to death. They didn't believe. They tried to kill him. But not only that, Jesus rose from the dead and some of you do not believe. So much for that philosophy. The way to be saved is the scriptures. The ultimate divine revelation and truth of God about what will happen to people who do not repent and those who do. Simple. Remember, the rich young ruler walked away sorrowful because Jesus told him, one thing you lack. He said he kept all the law since his youth. Outwardly he did, but Jesus put his finger on his heart. His God, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. It says he walked away sorrowful because he had many riches. Luke 18, 22-24. But the text says Jesus loved him. Jesus was trying to cause him to see his failure and his acknowledgement of sin so he could be saved. I'm sure that if he would have said, okay, Lord, the Lord would have said, don't worry about it. God doesn't need your money or mine. But he calls us to be good investors in the kingdom. John Wesley said, get all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. I've already told you often that the minute you were born again, that first weekend, you were 30 to 40% ahead financially. You didn't go buy all the booze, the drugs, crash your car, tear up your clothes, go to the ER to sew your face up, or whatever. Automatically, we will be financially ahead just living in a way that God wants us to. The time for us to be concerned about unsaved loved ones and friends is while we are living and they're living, not afterwards, ladies and gentlemen. Pray for those who are lost. Constantly, your friends, your loved ones, those you work with. Tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, His love, and how He desires to forgive them of their sins. And then let your life confirm your message so your proclamation is not canceled out. You remember, I've told you about my friend Joey Hernandez two years ago when I buried his mom. He came to the Lord after 40 years of praying for him and ministering unto him. I'm so glad I didn't quit at 39. Now, how that all works, my prayer and all that and how and the individual's uh, free will, I don't understand it. But I'm not supposed to try to figure it out. I'm just supposed to pray and to minister. Be involved in ministry. Invest in the kingdom. Be involved in missions. Be involved in giving to God what belongs to God. Be a good investor. The returns are great. Acts 1, 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, the world is dying. The world is being deceived. Now we even have these guys of the architects of the Obama uh, uh, health care that they, they, they purposely deceived us and lied to us. And they're laughing at it. No one's gone to jail. No one's going to go to jail. Our republic is done. The rule of law. It's oligarchy. 
They're in control. It's a joke. <laughs> Luke twenty eighteen says, whoever falls on the stone will be broken. That's good. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. That stone is Jesus. If you humble yourself, he'll exalt you, forgive you. If you're arrogant, he falls upon you, he'll crush you. You won't make it. The sufficiency of Scripture for salvation of man is without question. The invitation is clear. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The explanation is, uh, of the transaction is equally clear in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The limitation is amazingly clear. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no man comes to the Father by me in John 14, 6. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved, Acts 4, 12. There's one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. It's very narrow, but it's the only way. Now, you have to believe it and accept it or reject it. That's all you can do. And you will be responsible for your choices. You're making the greatest investment of eternity on what you decide about Jesus Christ. The wisest thing to do is to invest in God and spiritual things, not those of the world. Be a steward. Take care of yourself. Take care of your finances. Let them work for you. There are many outside the church and within the church, like the rich man, lost. Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. He addresses both believer and non-believer. But those who desire to be rich fall temptation and snares. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men's destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money, not money itself. It's amoral. For which some have strayed from the faith for greediness. That's believers. So he talked about the non-believer, now the believer. And pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So you and I are not beyond this. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 9 says, Command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for, your, for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. God will direct and guide you. Your pastor doesn't tell you who to give. Your pastor doesn't tell you how much to give. That's not my business. That's your responsibility towards God. There are others who have it very hard in life, and they are spiritual giants before God, investing in spiritual things. Some of these people make me, your pastor, look like a spiritual pygmy. Difficult lives. But they walk with God every day. They study the word. They go to church. First Samuel 16, 7 gives us the perspective from heaven. God speaking to Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. And the Lord does not see as man sees. 
For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We get so caught up on the outside. Look at this guy, this and that. Often people hear me on the radio. And they come over and say, man, I was expecting someone much bigger. I said, well, that's life. I needed to put a face. See, I got a perfect face for radio. We get this image of a person, who, who they are. They, they listen to my brother, they think he's a Mexican and I'll, I'll be big and this. You look wrong. They often ask me, why does he have a, um, an accent and you don't? Simple. He's adopted. <laughs> Two and a half years difference, that's all. I don't know why. The principle is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto us. And then we have to be stewards and abide in Christ and be fruitful. John, Matthew 6.33 and John 15.1-8. That's it. Everything is God's. I don't, nothing's mine. What am I going to take with me? You ever see a hearse pull a U-Haul? As we move on in Luke 19, 13, listen to the words of Jesus in this parable. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, here's the key, do business till I come. I like the old King James, occupy till I come. Are you occupying? Are you doing business for God? Are you investing in the kingdom of God? Are you so caught up with the world? Oh, the market. <laughs> the two regrets in eternity were opposite of God's provisions for sinners on earth. And he had to live with that. All eternity. You ever regret something? And had to live with it? And then by God's grace, he helped you? Well, there's no help in Hades. There's no relief. Not for 10 years, not for 100 years. It's for eternity. So the text of the rich man and Lazarus, the beggar here, is the climax of all the preceding material to illustrate who really is a wise investor while on earth. The immediate connection is the unjust steward. He was shrewd. Jesus said we should be Shooting the things of God. The two men in life live on opposite economic levels on earth. The two men after death receive opposite spiritual investment returns in Hades. And the two regrets in eternity were opposite of God's provisions for sinners on earth. Are you unsaved? Are you lost? Are you religious? Then you need to be born again. Your opinions do not matter. Your philosophies are not important. They will only harden your heart. The Word of God tells you the truth. You need to be born again lest you perish. He's made provision because He loves you. He doesn't want you to end up in the place of the rich man. He wants to see you in heaven. But you alone can make that decision, no one else. I pray that you begin to be a wise investor for all eternity. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness.
We pray your hand be upon us. You deal with us, Lord. And I pray for all who are here that you would just minister the heart, those who don't know you, maybe over the internet, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. It makes no difference how much money you have. It doesn't make any difference how moral you are. What makes a difference is that you are lost and a sinner like everybody else. And God desires for you to acknowledge and repent of your sins by His grace. If this is your desire, repent means a change of mind with a change of life through the gospel. Then this can be your prayer to Him to ask Him to forgive you and to give you new life and to transform you. This is your prayer to Him, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.